Hey fam, this is your host, Amber Preston, and this is Family Drama. Police in Columbus arrested Milligan. Billy, 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 Billy Milligan. The Billy Milligan case is a one in a million. It was undisputed he committed the crime. The question is whether he was innocent by reason of insanity. Billy was not typical. Multiple personality disorder is difficult to understand. Just every time I wake up, somebody says I did something bad. What you just heard is from the Netflix documentary Monsters Inside, released this past September. Yes, the story of Billy Milligan is a fascinating and tragic story of a criminal with a shattered mind who was thrown into a dysfunctional system that exploited and abused him. When I talk with friends who have seen the documentary, though, the first and the most common question is, how is your mother so freaking normal? That is usually followed by something like, if she grew up with Billy, how did she not turn out crazy? In this first episode, I will introduce you to my mother, Kathy Preston, who is Billy's sister. It doesn't matter whether or not you've seen the documentary, because this series isn't about him. This is her story, and her story is captivating. It's a story of trauma and pain, but also strength and resilience. Her story reveals what it's like to grow up and exist in the shadows of insanity. Some of the content in today's episode may evoke your own memories of traumatic events. We do not wish to cause anyone distress and hope you find someone in your life with which to share your thoughts and feelings, someone who can help you on your own journey to healing. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Welcome to Family Drama. As if you haven't had enough. Yes. <laughs> First, I have to tell our listeners that I didn't really know much about your life. I mean, your, your real life until I became an adult. I think that this is an important point because as kids, we, we experience our parents with what they present us, how they treat us, good or bad, and we don't seem to think about their lives before us. As I grew up, I saw you as the strong matriarch of our family, obviously an intelligent teacher, so compassionate. You literally went above and beyond for all of us. You were a protector. I could literally come to you with anything. I felt safe with you. I never had to question the amount of love that you had for me and my siblings. Now I understand why you went to such lengths to protect us, to protect our privacy. Right. And I actually did have a life before you guys came along. <laughs> Apparently. Yes. <laughs> so I've I, learned. Yes. And I wasn't always an English teacher. In fact, I enjoyed teaching science more than English when I was in elementary education. But as a middle school teacher, I, I really do enjoy teaching English. By the way, now that you're retired, are you thinking about writing your memoir? I'm not sure. I have written several scenes that we're going to be talking about in today's and in later episodes, but I really do like this platform because you get to hear my actual voice mm -hmm. and our actual voices. Yeah. 
And I think that a podcast allows for people to multitask at the same time they're listening to a story, which so many people are doing these days, given the pandemic and all. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a podcast now. Yes. Right. And now we do too. <laughs> yes. And in order to understand my background, we have to understand who my parents were, the genetic predisposition to insanity, and to understand the period of the 1950s and 60s that led to these traumatic events that were in our lives. I'll start with my father, Johnny Morrison, who was born in 1913 in Chicago, Illinois. He was born to Jewish immigrants from Poland and Germany. He grew up in the Chicago area and graduated at the age of 16. He was a musician who played the xylophone and wrote his own music, and he became a comedian during the vaudeville era. He worked in what was called the Borscht Circuit. In the 1920s and up through the 1960s, Jewish people were not welcome or allowed in many of the nightclubs. Oh, okay. But there were several Jewish-owned properties and clubs and hotels in the Catskill Mountains in New York, which was known as the Jewish Alps in (laughs) Solomon Country. It was a very popular area for Jewish people to be able to go on vacation. It was more affordable, and it was before all of the mass transportation with airlines where you could go to warmer places. But he began as an entertainer and as a MC leading in acts for people like Jimmy Durante and Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. And people like Mel Brooks and Joan Rivers got their start actually in the Borscht circuit during this period of time. Anyway, he spent a good deal of time and work there in the mountains and all along the East Coast down through the Miami area, and he worked in nightclubs down through the Florida Keys. I don't know much about his family other than that he had a sister and his parents later moved to the Detroit area. He did meet my mother in the nightclubs in Miami, Florida. Now, my mother was born Dorothy Sands in Amanda, Ohio in 1929 at the onset of the Great Depression. She was the third of four children who lived on a farm with very strict Catholic grandparents. Her mother died of some type of colon cancer when she was eight years old. And her father left the children with the grandparents and moved to Portsmouth, Ohio, to open a bakery. What? He just left? Well, yeah, he was a baker by trade. But he couldn't just continue living on the farm Uh without his wife. And so he went to Portsmouth, opened a bakery. He met another woman there, and he started a new family with her. So we can see, probably right then, how mom might have had daddy abandonment issues Uh in her young life. And like I said, it was during the Great Depression. So they were living on a farm, farming, They were living in poverty and probably wanting to escape the strict upbringing of the Catholic grandparents. Mom escaped by marrying her high school sweetheart as soon as she graduated from high school. His name was Dick Jonas. He enlisted in the service toward the end of World War II. 
Dick was an alcoholic, and when he returned from the service, he became a truck driver. Very early in their marriage, Mom left Ohio to go to Miami, Florida to live with her sister, Joanne. This was where she began her singing career in the nightclubs in Miami, Florida. Mom was not a trained singer, but she had a good voice. She was beautiful with dancing blue eyes and long, wavy black hair. Did she divorce Dick when she went to Miami? Well, no. (laughs) Mom did not actually divorce Dick Jonas when she left to go to Miami, but she met my dad, who was 16 years older than she was. So I imagine that as someone significantly older than she was, as she was in her early 20s at the time, Mm -hmm. that that would have made him in his mid-30s. And he became somewhat of a protector to her, someone who could help her at the beginning stages of her singing career. Mm -hmm. And this must have been comforting to her to have more of a father figure than the lover he became later. Mm -hmm. My dad, Johnny Morrison, and my mom became a duo, and they traveled the circuit together playing in the popular nightclubs of Miami and down through the Florida Keys, especially the famous Sloppy Joes in Key West. Eventually, she got pregnant with my oldest brother, Jim. Wait, wasn't she married to Dick Jonas at the time? Did your parents get married? This is where the story gets a little muddled and confusing because my mother told me that my father was married Mm -hmm. and they could never find his wife. So he couldn't get a divorce. (laughs) But in the suicide note that my father left, that we'll get to that later. Okay. (laughs) He said that she refused to marry him when he kept asking her again and again. Mm -hmm. He kept saying... They needed to legitimize the children. We needed to get married. And so it becomes a he said, she said thing. Mm. But he's dead, of course. And so I can't really (laughs) figure that out. I could never quite get the truth from anyone, my aunts, uncles, anybody, about the truth about this. Because people back then, as they do now, will often say, that's water under the bridge and that's the past. Let's just let it go. Mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating to, to try to find out the truth. I'm sure. Anyway, my dad, from what I understand, they had a, a difficult relationship, but Jim was born in 1953 in Detroit, Michigan, when they were visiting my paternal grandparents. And And of course, the relationship was difficult. Apparently, my father had a difficult relationship with his own mother and father because he was Jewish and my mother was Catholic Mm. and they weren't married. And this wasn't kosher in anybody's religion, you know, during this period of time in either my mother's or my father's life. My mother told me that my father always struggled with depression and anxiety. He was also a drinker and a gambler who was often in great amount of debt because of his gambling problems. And they still continued to work through the nightclub circuit. And not much later than that, Billy was born. And again, according to the note, he tried to get her to marry him, but she refused. And Billy had significant medical issues as an infant. 
my father took that as a sign from God that they should legitimize the children and considered the possible loss of Billy would be God's punishment since they were not married. But again, she refused and said they were legitimate in God's eyes, not worry about it. You know, her own reality. Yes, her reality was that. And I don't know what she really knew about her life at the time, about her legal status. According to mom, dad's drinking continued and he was verbally abusive. And she said he could also become violent at times. And as his depression continued, he did attempt suicide at least once before I was born. Oh by taking a drug overdose. Mom considered his depression and attempted suicide as a way to get out from under the significant gambling debts that he had accumulated. She said loan sharks were constantly calling and making threats, but still, you know, she got pregnant with me. (laughs) She once told me that dad arranged for an abortion in Cuba because he didn't want another child. But she refused to go through with it. So I kind of get mixed messages about his thoughts about being a parent to us. And I don't know if that were really true. That was just something she told me when I was much older. Mm. Well, I guess her strong Catholic faith worked in your behalf or else we wouldn't be here. Neither of us. (laughs) True story. Neither of us would be here (laughs) right now. Wow. I was later born at the end of 1956, and they continued to live together for the next two years. But during the mid to late 50s, the popularity of the nightclubs waned because television was coming into people's homes. Fewer people were going out for entertainment, and both of their careers started to suffer as the nightclubs lost their popularity. That created, of course, further financial tensions and Mom says that dad became violent, continued to drink and gamble, so she finally threw him out of the house. And according to, again, his suicide notes, she refused to let him see me on my birthday, which was on New Year's Eve in 1958. So two years after I was born, on January 18th of 1959, dad ran a garden hose from the exhaust of his car through the driver's window and committed suicide in the parking lot of the hotel where he was staying. The only thing that you remember about your father is just what you have been told by your mother. You were only two years old, and what was left in the suicide note? Well, correct. I have no real recollection of my father, and I didn't know he actually committed suicide until I was a teenager. Oh, okay. Mom always just said that he got sick and died, but she didn't go into any of the details, as she said it was too painful. When I finally did find out he killed himself, she explained how mentally ill he was and told me how difficult and abusive the common law marriage had become. I had no reason at that point to doubt what she said. After all, he did kill himself. It was likely that he was mentally ill, but 10 years later, during Billy's trial, after she told me about his suicide in the 70s, I received a copy of the suicide note, which painted a very different reality of their life together. Oh, really? 
Yeah, it will make a lot more sense if we return to the contents of the suicide note in a future episode because of the time frame and because I want to try to keep this as chronological as yeah. for our listeners to understand what was going on. It will make more sense later. Okay, so we need to recap a hot second. Your mom, the woman I know as grandma, lost her mother and was abandoned by her father at the age of eight during the Great Depression. She married an alcoholic right out of high school, abandoned him, and ran off to Miami where she met Johnny Morrison and had three illegitimate kids. No no judgment, seriously. (laughs) Really. And now, at the beginning of 1959, just before she turns, what, 30? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is a widowed single parent who may or may not still be legally married to Dick Jonas. That's a lot of baggage. What did she do? Did she stay in Florida? Was there life insurance? Did she get social security from from your dad's death? How did she survive? Back then, women couldn't even own their own bank account, right? Financially, she must have been screwed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Yes. Uh, all of that. Yes, that's okay. a lot. Yes. So here she is, especially since they were not married, she wasn't entitled to anything. There were no social service agencies for single parents. She was in a losing situation. You know, some months after my father's death, she moved back to Ohio and mm-hmm. somehow bought a small house in Circleville, Ohio. <laughs> oh, the pumpkin show. Yes, yes. <laughs> the round town. Yes. <laughs> it was a small farming community that had some industry, mainly the DuPont factory at the time. DuPont made various light bulbs and fluorescents and mom got a job there and we moved to 152 Pontius Lane. <laughs> And our phone number was GR44116. You know See, this still. <laughs> you never forget stuff that you teach your kids in case they get lost or what, well, kidnapped. On. What is GR4? Is that like a boomer thing? Okay, our boomer audience will understand totally. Okay. Millennials don't, but way back then we used a prefix before the number. GR stood for granted, and it was just a, an identification of a central system responsible for land lines. <laughs> yes. Uh, we used rotary phones and had live operators to place very expensive long-distance phone calls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a drastic change to go from the nightlife of Miami, Florida to a factory job in the round town. I was like, <laughs> <Circleville>. <laughs> <laughs> like, was it because it was close to Amanda where her grandparents were or was she able to reconnect with their family? She was kind of the black sheep, so how did they treat her? Well, yes, given her circumstances, she was the black sheep of the family. (laughs) She didn't have family support because neither side accepted her lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They considered uh, she lived in sin. She made bad choices and had to live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Her brothers had gone into the service during the war and became college educated, got good jobs, met women and had stable marriages and moved to various places around the United States. And her older sister was in Miami, Aunt Jo, the one she went to stay with. She was married to a pilot for what used to be Eastern Airlines and had a nice home on Lake Catalina and four children. 
they were doing quite well. And there's mom who had three illegitimate children, no real skills with which to survive and to provide for us. Weirdly enough, what would she do? She went back to Dick Jonas. What? 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 Hold on now. Okay, so she has three kids by someone else and she just shows back up in his life? Well, sort of. (laughs) Turns out she was actually divorced from him. Okay. You know, while she was in Florida, Dick filed for divorce for abandonment, which was a legal thing at the time. And since she never showed up to any hearing, she may or may not know that she actually was divorced. So then she could have married your father all along. Maybe. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) We'll never really know. And at any rate, Dick and Mom did remarry. And it seems that Dick was willing to take on Mom's three kids and to be step-parent to us. But of course, he was an alcoholic and a long-haul truck driver, and that marriage went south pretty quick, and they divorced. The only thing I really remember about Dick Jonas, I mean, he was—he seemed to be nice, mm-hmm. and even though he was an alcoholic, he didn't seem to be a mean alcoholic. You know, you can either be really, really mean or really, really funny. He seemed to be more comical to me when he was around drinking. So they divorced, and Grandma went to work at the DuPont factory making fluorescent light bulbs. If Grandma was working at the factory, who was taking care of you? Like, what was what was your childhood like in Circleville? Well, there weren't any daycares or anything like that at the time for children. And so Mom hired babysitters to come into the house and watch us while she worked during the day and sometimes at night. And they were nice little old ladies, usually. I remember Mrs. Easter being one of them, and she would sit and watch her stories, (laughs) soap operas. And they were popular at the time. And the three of us, Jim, Billy, and I, pretty much ran, like all children did back then, ran amok all over the neighborhood. It was a safer period of time, even though we were all very young. We would, of course, never allow that to happen these days. Right, right. So... What I'm getting at, because I, if our audience knows or doesn't know, we know what's coming. But at this time in your life, you felt normal, right? Well, certainly for, well, whatever normal means in children growing up in the 60s. -hmm. Mom decided to raise us Catholic, Mm -hmm. and she put us in a Catholic school. I really wasn't quite ready for school yet, but Jim and Billy went to St. Joseph's eventually, and I went there for the first part of first and second grade. Jim was nearly expelled when he told the nuns we were Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) And mom just couldn't find a synagogue close enough for us. But mom reassured them that we were definitely Catholic. And I remembered the nuns trying to make Billy write with his right hand because he was left-handed. Oh, yes. And that's a sign of the devil. Yes, it is. And I started school very early and took my first Holy Communion in second grade. We played like normal children play. We ran all over the neighborhood. We'd get a nickel and walk up to the dairy aisle and get ice cream. I didn't play that much really with Jim because he had older friends and there was about four years difference in our ages, closer to five. Mm -hmm. 
and I was probably just an annoying little sister to him. And but Billy and I had a closer relationship from the very beginning. He he played differently. He seemed to have an incredible imagination and could role play. He didn't mind playing with stuffed animals. We preferred stuffed animals over dolls. Although he didn't mind playing with dolls either. We played with the neighborhood kids. We would get into mischievous things like painting rocks with black tar from the heated streets. <laughs> it made an excellent mess and I can remember mom having to clean the black tar out of our hair and clothes with gasoline. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> she was not too happy about that. It was Jim's fault, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, we had a swing set in the back yard and we played with crawl dads down at Hargis Creek and it seemed really normal to me as I recall. Yeah, it seemed very, very normal until Chalmer Milligan came into our lives. Our lives then changed forever. Forever. 